I'm Dr. Adam Jirachi. And you are listening to Love's a Secret Weapon podcast. The following program is brought to you in living color on NBC. You know I've been an advocate of the family-type TV show for many, many years, and that's why I'm so delighted to present tonight's play. It's a brand-new American family written by Arnold Schulman. It has all the warmth, the heart, the sentiment, and the lunacy that goes on in the average American home. And our cast is a very good one. You'll see three wonderful new stars. Michael Constantine, Lou Antonio, and Donna Lawrence with guest star Bill Bixby. And believe it or not, that's me. I'll be back in just one minute with this very delightful play. Welcome back to Love's a Secret Weapon podcast. And today we have a treat for TV aficionados when we delve into Donna's TV pilot called Two for Penny. It's nice to be back, Donna. Oh, Adam, always, sweetheart. The world is topsy-turvy. And uh, if we can just stay, you know, in our focus of love, uh, that is where my heart lies. And I hope all of our listeners, as well as many, many, many millions, billions of people Mm. all over the world. Absolutely. And in our last episode, speaking of the world, you had taken a trip to Paris for the dating game and then on to Rome for a potential role as uh, Gina Lollabridgeter's daughter in a movie. And at the time that you had left to uh, go to Paris for the dating game, you had just started seeing someone. And now in this episode, we're going to pick up on your return back to Los Angeles. Is that right? That is correct. Great. So before we do, though, as I said, we're going to talk about a pilot you did called Two for Penny, uh, which was screened as part of a anthology series that Danny Thomas produced in the late 1960s called The Danny Thomas Hour. So for our listeners, because probably most of them, unless they watched it at the time, this is a, a pretty hard piece of TV to find. What was the premise of the Two for Penny pilot, if you remember? Mm, I do very clearly. Um, there was a movie called Love with a Proper Stranger starring mm-hmm. Natalie Wood mm. and Steve McQueen about a young sister uh, with two brothers that were highly protective of her and she fell in love with someone so um, they were constantly trying to prevent her them from being together Mm. Um, the author of or the screenplay writer of this movie decided to work with Aaron Spelling and Danny Thomas on a TV series uh, in which I would play the part of Natalie Wood mm. and Michael Considine and Lou brother- Antonio, yeah, yeah, two brothers, um, and uh, and then uh, we did a pilot, um, yes, so uh, for NBC, which was aired a couple of times, 
Mm-hmm. And in the in the pilot, the family is Greek. So the issue, um, well, well, first of all, particularly Michael Constantine is the very overbearing brother, and then Lou Antoni is kind of the overbearing brother, but, but more kind of the muscle. He's the one that thinks he's going to bonk someone on the head, you know, every time he's not particularly happy with them. But the conflict was, I guess, that they, first of all, they wanted to shelter your character, Penny, sort of completely anyway, but particularly when they think that she is going to start dating a non-Greek boy played by Bill Bixby, they think, okay, we've got to, we've got to organise something here and, and they try to sort of find a, a Greek guy for you to, you know, well, essentially get married to and, and that kind of causes a conflict in, in the house. <laughs> Well, isn't isn't that something that just, you know, is pervasive to this moment, you know, where families get involved and parents mm-hmm. think they know best and mm-hmm. children, you know, either go their own way and um, hopefully the parents will finally acquiesce or um, it's just one of those dilemmas, you know, that that uh, come into the control category mm-hmm. and instead of letting it be. Absolutely. And that's what I look forward to after our reading is sort of delving a lot more into this because I watched the pilot again recently. And so I've got a lot of questions. But will you read for us? Because today we are actually coming to the end of one of our longer chapters called Blowing Out the Candles. This is the last part of that very long chapter where so much has happened. I'd love to. Thank you, Adam. Go, Donna. Lenny's ambivalence gave way for me to act out as a little bit of a wild child upon my return from Rome when I was set to do a TV show called Groovy, hosted by the super cute, curly blonde Michael Blodgett. setting was the beach in Santa Monica. A group of kids gathered around me and I decided to speak every Italian word I could remember. The host's trailer door opened wide to reveal the lovely tanned body of Michael who invited me in. Was it the sun that made the temperature rise so quickly in those four walls? I recalled the flushed faces of the beach bunnies filing out of the director's trailer on the beach party sets And now it was me. I accepted a date from Michael. My affair with him only lasted a couple of weeks, but I must say that boy was quite a gymnast. But as soon as I did hear from Lenny, my heart was completely his. I drove my little red Corvette over to Lenny's place in West Hollywood by Tower Records. When I arrived, I recognized a fellow artist who was visiting Sal Valentino from the Beau Brummels, sat on the floor with his black boots pressed up against the white walls of Lenny's apartment. 
I saw how he was scuffing the walls, leaving black marks on the paint, and my attitude and awareness was changing toward Lenny. Now my heart raised for him as well as a bit of protectiveness for how he was living. I didn't like Sal's boots on the wall. I, I wouldn't say anything at the time. What morphed into our future dates was the satisfaction I'd get looking around the apartment and seeing what needed taking care of. It was always a bone of contention for my mother when Maury told me in front of her that I never had to do anything but sing, and he meant it. Now my maternal instinct kicked in to begin taking care of the man I loved. I'd come over and find a sink bubbling over with dirty pots and pans and dishes and paraphernalia. I'd just dig in and clean while Lenny sat on a well-worn sofa talking to a colleague or listening to a latest project. If I'm not too tired Some nights we'll sit romancing Watching the late show by the fire One day, when I really turned my detective juice up to see what I could clean, I spied his shower. Two immaculate footprints were implanted in the middle of the scummy tile surface what a project and what satisfaction. He probably never realized that his shower needed cleaning. Typical bachelor mentality. We were becoming very familiar, so the natural progression was to meet the parents. Lenny had been initiated to mine. Now it was my turn to be introduced to his parents. I must say I was nervous the night we met them at Chasen's, a well-known and respected celebrity-based steakhouse on Doheny Drive and Beverly Boulevard. We walked up to a booth where Cy, his father, and Jeanette, his mom, were sitting comfortably sipping cocktails. His mother's face was beautiful. Her Austrian ancestry showed through her features. They were like a Dresden doll, porcelain skin and almond-shaped eyes. Also, she had an air of elegance unfamiliar to me with my own mother. Sai was a bit more relatable. Munching on his steak and fries, he made me feel at home. I ordered something that I learned to eat when I was in Europe, escargot. I really embarrassed myself when the shell clamp that holds them when trying to eat its sweet meat slipped and the first shell went flying across the table. Deja vu with my Dr. Pepper screen test. His parents were amused, and Lenny wasn't affected by my clumsiness either. It was just another occasion for me to be real. We parted with an invitation from his parents inviting mine to dinner at their house. This situation was advancing rather swiftly for my marriage plans. 
The evening of the nuptial to be dinner, I sat in Jeanette's kitchen on a yellow vinyl upholstered ladder stool, common in those days, and watched as she seeded the eggplant she was preparing for dinner. I saw how meticulously she washed out every last seed so her ratatouille would be perfectly smooth. Each time she reached for something in her cupboard doors with her wet hands, she would polish off the wood. It was excessive. All the while, our conversation went in the direction of me feeling like I was inheriting a mother-in-law I admired. I told her a little about the pressures I had with my family and that I didn't know how much longer I could handle it. By the time the doorbell rang and my parents were there, I felt I had a new ally. Sai graciously showed my parents and me around his newly decorated penthouse in the iconic Sierra Towers. We were all in awe of the scenic view reflecting the twinkle of city lights below. Sai explained how he had been collecting paintings of clowns. His pride and joy was a clown playing a violin. He took us over to a beautiful china cabinet and described the gorgeous jade collection and misen porcelain figurines depicting a symphony orchestra. We then were invited to gather around a game table with very comfortable club chairs that swiveled. Lenny's mom entered with the first course and we proceeded to have an evening with polite conversation. The evening closed after a couple of hours, enough time to decide what chemistry we all shared. It was a foregone conclusion that my instincts lead toward a new life with Lenny and his family. His parents were polite, but never developed a closeness with mine. A new momentum for my career was building. I was called in to meet with and audition for Aaron Spelling to star in my own series. He liked me and wanted to go forward, so then my next meeting was with Paul Bogart, who would be the director. When I met Paul, I had just finished reading The Apple Cart by George Bernard Shaw. In my interview, he was taken aback by that, explaining, Oh, I just finished directing that off-Broadway. I think it gave him the confidence that we both had the same point of reference, and so we'd probably work together very well. Next, I met Arnold Schulman, the writer. Arnold was a New York resident, a very sophisticated writer for stage and screen. He'd been nominated for an Academy Award for writing Love with the Proper Stranger, starring Natalie Wood and Steve McQueen, and he based this television series on the same story. I was chosen to play the Natalie Wood character and Michael Considine and Lou Antonio, the overbearing brothers. Danny Thomas, who was the co-executive producer with Aaron Spelling, also played a Greek Orthodox priest. FYI, this was where Regis Philbin made his acting debut. Hey, instead of the pepperoni, can you make that provolone and salami without the anchovies? By the end of November, Maury picked up the script from William Morris. In between meeting with the producers, director, and writer, I filmed my appearance in The Mothers-in-Law in front of a live audience. Maury took me to the studio in the morning, and Lenny decided he would pick me up at the end of the day. I began shooting Two for Penny with the opening scene, which was in my bedroom. 
Michael Considine from my big fat Greek wedding played my older brother who was rudely invading my slumber. In the script, my character Penny Canopolis gets out of bed and wanders over to her closet to put on some clothes. Michael's character follows me, more or less heckling me and being overbearing and overprotective. What's he talking about you for? You know, you drive me crazy with your superstitions. What do you mean? You stopped sneezing, didn't you? That proves that he's talking about I you. I stopped sneezing because I stopped sneezing. You know, he's just a type I like to break his What head. are you going mad about? What do you think? I went some crazy thinking about my sister this time or more. Well... In real life, when I opened the closet door, it hooked onto one of his big toenails and it lifted it straight up. He screamed out in a way where obviously everyone knew he was in pain. Michael had to be rushed off to have it fixed up and came back with a cast on his foot a few hours later. And then we resumed filming. The show was filmed at Desilu Gower in L.A., and Arnold Schulman was away from his wife and children for that 10-day period. My dad and I had a chance during this time to become friendly with him, and I knew that he was missing his family in New York. One day I asked him if there was something he wanted to bring back for his small children. I offered to go to Disneyland now that I had my own car. I suggested that maybe his children would like a Mickey Mouse watch, which he thought was a great idea. He said, okay, just pick me up two watches and I'll pay you back. As I was making the arrangements to drive to Anaheim, Lou Antonio, who played my older brother, came over to me and overheard our conversation. He said, oh, would you get me one too? I told him I would, and soon after I drove down to Anaheim, went straight into Disneyland, bypassing all the attractions. I went directly to buy the three watches, got back in my little red Corvette, and drove back home. The next time I was on the set, I gave the two watches to Arnold, and he immediately wrote me a check to reimburse me. Then Lou came over to me, and I said, and here's yours, and he said thank you and walked away. He never paid me back. Lenny and I were kind of making a habit of listening to music and getting high. I thought it would be fun to wear my boyfriend's jeans to work, so I borrowed a pair from him. I never usually wore jeans in my life. The only time I know I wore a pair of red jeans was for a photo session with Randy Boone for a magazine article. I just wasn't a Levi's type person, and for Lenny, that was part of a uniform. Mom? I, you know I can't. Ever? Never. Why? I told you. Yes, I know you told me. You keep telling me, but it doesn't make any sense. I know it doesn't. Because I'm the boss's son. No. Because I'm not Greek. They won't even let me date Greek boys unless we sit in the living room the whole time with one of them in the next room. What do you mean, let you? You're old enough. You don't have to listen to anybody. I know I don't have to. I want to. You know, there's a lot of Greek families that think the same way. Here? In New York City? The night before filming a scene with Bill Bigsby, I had one of those nice little trips with Lenny, which always made me feel loose. Bill was a guest star as my boyfriend, David, and there was a scene with him where I was working in an office. During a break, Bill was sitting in a director's chair and started tapping his lap, signaling to me to come over. I sat on his lap and he said, so you like listening to music? I told him I did. He said, well, you know it always sounds better when you get high. 
Of course, I knew what he was talking about. And he continued, well, if you ever want to listen to music with me and get high, just let me know. Eventually, I got up and obviously never followed up on that one. I was already involved with Lenny and had my life outlined and sculpted. I already knew Bill was involved with Brenda Bonet, who had been married to my friend Paul, and eventually they married. My relationship with Paul Bogart, the director, was going along swimmingly. Out of left field one day, however, during a few minutes of downtime, he signaled to me and asked that I go into a fully functional bathroom set. He told me, I'm going to turn the camera on and just brush your teeth. He didn't give me any further direction. I did as I was told, and when I was done, I felt he was disappointed. It was only natural for a director to explore the personality of a potential star of a series. The simple act of brushing one's teeth creates an intimate bond with the audience. Maybe I should have blown bubbles or gargled or even let foam run down my chin. I've thought about it ever since, honest to God. Every time that I brush my teeth, I think about Paul Bogart. Executive producer Danny Thomas had a major role as a Greek Orthodox priest, and on set, he was the boss. During one of the takes, there was a little time delay. We were working with the boom microphone, which was always above our heads, out of sight of the camera. Danny Thomas amused himself by screeching into the live microphone. It might have been funny to him, but for those working in the sound booth, it must have been painfully loud. It was stunning to me that veteran comedians of this stature showed their vaudevillian roots in such an aggressive way. One of his peers, Jerry Lewis, hammered a microphone on the rim of a stage, making an atrociously loud sound in front of a live audience. I witnessed this abusive act during Mr. Lewis's stand-up after I sang at the same event. At the end of the 10-day shoot, I concluded with a sense of satisfaction. Overall, I thought it went very well. The intention of this hour network pilot, which essentially had a guarantee of being aired, was to turn into a series. We all thought that it had great potential. The downfall of the storyline set in an ethnic tone that American audiences were unaccustomed to was actually the character that Danny Thomas played. NBC allowed one airing in primetime with one rerun and canceled any future development plans. I really had no second thoughts about Two for Penny. To my delight, Lenny announced he wanted to marry me and would I accept his mother's diamond engagement ring. 
I thought how romantic that would be to carry on a tradition. His mom and dad were happily married for over 30 years. And the ring Lenny offered me was styled in the 30s and a bit dated for my taste. The round diamond, however, was two carats. I made an appointment at my grammar school friend Linda's jewelry store in Westwood, Crescent Jewelers, to have his mother's diamond set for me on a wide gold band. We planned our wedding for March. I was turning 21 on the 7th, and our wedding would be on the 24th. I made a date with my mother to look for a wedding dress. We went to the bridal department at Robinson's in Beverly Hills for a fitting. Usually my weight was never a problem. I think the tension of the change I was making was getting to me. Every bride wants to look their best, so I decided to ask my mom for the first time to take a few of her diet pills to make sure that my waistline was as trim as it could be. The pills made me hyper and talk weird, like I was all sped up with a dry mouth. And Lenny noticed my change in behavior. He said, I didn't know you liked that stuff. When I was booked on the Pat Boone show, I was under the influence of the diet pill. It put me in a state of illusion and made me feel quite distant from everyone, like I was in my own world. I can see why people are addicted to some form of drug inducement to alter their state of mind and put them in their bubble. But once was enough for me. When I tried my dress on in the bridal salon, an overwhelming feeling of transformation welled up inside me. It's truly amazing how magic a wedding dress can be. Wow, really a lot to talk about as always, both the professional and the personal. But it's particularly interesting, I think, what you were saying towards the end of the reading, which was really about appearing on the Pat Boone show while having taken the diet pills. And and I I just find that a really interesting situation um, for someone performing. Yes, and may I say that when I had that experience of feeling a distance between myself and the audience. That is exactly the opposite. I loved performing. I loved connecting with people. To have that effect of, you know, being in my own space and being removed from from connecting with people and, you know, looking them in the eye and and having some sort of a, a relationship in that moment, you mm. know, that that it was so, so imperative for me. So um, I'm sure that's why my awareness said, no, 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 that's not not good for me. You not know? something you want to do going forward, which is interesting because we're entering kind of that, that late 60s stage at this point. And I imagine there would have been a lot of people who were starting to, you know, I guess, check out if, if we want to call it that and, and were sort of utilising substances while performing and and how they related to that whether they thought it was something that just improved them whether it was something that they just took and didn't give it a thought but for you you really that idea that that connection there was kind of a bit of a wall put up or a distance put up between Mm -hmm. you and the audience when you engaged in that Mm -hmm. and you know from what I understand you know Yes, I have definitely indulged in my fair share of, you know, marijuana. (laughs) Um, For me, you know, that has never made me feel distant. Mm. Um, In fact, I don't know, for some reason, it maybe it even connects me more in in a strange way. Mm. Um, 
uh, everyone's chemistry, you know, body chemistry is different. That's just how it affects me. Um, but my goodness, you know, I did witness, you know, um, let's say an abuse of, mm. of, you know, of that, of that usage, not, not, uh, marijuana, but, um, more, um, uh, mind altering substances. Mm. And, mm. um, and, and I think that it was done deliberately. I think, you know, that, well, I'm, I'm recalling, uh, Keith Richards book when he says, you know, it, during the days of his heroin use, yeah. that he would only use the finest and never too much. And it was, <laughs> and it was always, you know, uh, timed so that before he went into the studio to start writing a song and creating music with his fellow stones, you know, <laughs> that he wasn't, it wasn't about being stoned. It was about opening up his creativity. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. I think a lot, a lot of people, I mean, it, that's not the only way to take a substance, but, you know, there, I don't know, may, maybe nature has provided that for many of us. I mean, medicine men have taken magic mushrooms and smoked peyote and <laughs> things like that, you know, um, to, to go beyond our, you know, our maybe limited dimensions. But anyway, I'm not, I'm no expert in this field and I don't claim to be, I'm just saying that I love connecting with people. There is Mm. nothing better for me. So that's why when I was doing that, I did it four times, you know, taking four days Mm. worth of diet pills from my mother's (laughs) stash and, um, and never, never did that again. You know, it's interesting, of course, you know, you were, you were doing it to sort of, I guess, obtain an ideal. Um, and so it's interesting to kind of hear, yeah, what you have to do when you, you actually have to, you know, go and, and work. And I mean, these are, this is a completely different situation. But I remember, you know, doing those, you used to do those cleanses sometimes where you, you know, you don't eat for a couple of days, whatever it is, and you're drinking juices and so on. And I at least found that I, I was trying to work at the same time. I didn't know what was going on. I mean, that's not even a... It's not a diet yeah. pill. It's not a, but yeah. So you have to do it mm. very consciously. Mm. Well, but my, but as you, as I was saying, you know, mm. my my a reason for trying that was mm. to keep my weight under control, and it, you know, my weight was contractual with Dr Pepper. Yes, and my, you know, and my appearance was always more or less unspokenly contractual with you know my parents and my you know, everyone that I worked with, I had to be a certain way. So, you know, but I also think that the wedding dress kind of, mm. I don't know what to call it, enigma of <laughs> of fitting into your wedding dress. I mean, I think it is really important to many brides up to this moment. Yeah. Just go on Monique Lulier and look at <laughs> all of the brides she dresses. And mm. I'm sure they're all very conscious of, of how they're going to look for that special day. And feeling probably pretty hungry as well, I have to say. <laughs> well, you know, there's always that little piece of cake at the end of the ceremony. You know? <laughs> By the end of it, no one cares at that point, but up until <laughs> then, for sure. And, and you know, I think it's interesting in, in talking about, you know, the, um, I'm just picturing it, you know, just this, this bride hoeing down on this, you know, massive piece of wedding cake at the end of the night. <laughs> 
<laughs> but it's interesting because, you know, you're talking about, of course, you know, the, the wedding dress, which is a pretty common experience for, for many women and that concern about looking the best. But also, again, this idea of the, the control, the contractual agreement to maintain a certain weight, a certain look. Um, and all of those things, which you had been doing uh, from the beginning, several years before when you signed the Dr. Pepper contract, and now we're coming I know. into, yeah, I had being, to, mm. I had to weigh one hundred between one hundred and eleven and one hundred and fifteen, according to what a doctor, you know, would say about my bone structure or whatever, my height, yeah. or whatever. And or they could or or they could cancel my contract. Was there any ever any question of it? Like I presume I I know when you first uh, signed up, you 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 would have had all those sort of checks and balances. Did they ever follow it up, or was it they they looked and thought, oh, well, she looks. You mean, did they ever weigh me in? Yes, yes, (laughs) it's like a prize fighter. Uh, No, because uh, as you know me very well, Adam, that I. I, I took my responsibility very seriously and I yeah. wasn't going to go against the rules. Although I did tell you, you know, when I was on the monkeys that I mm. did drop to 107, but it just yeah. didn't, um, it, it didn't change uh, whatever I can say. It didn't change my relationship with Dr. Pepper. They didn't know the difference. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I guess in, in some ways going down in weight probably perhaps for them would have been preferable to putting it on shall we say within yeah n- no extremes you know it's yeah. like nothing like karen carpenter or some you yeah. know bulimia yeah. which would be very sad no sure. um, just a little here and a little there you know? <laughs> like we all well, do right <laughs> like we all do particularly during a pandemic but um <laughs> oh dear yeah, it's inter- it's interesting. Um, you know, it, if we talk about the two for penny uh, pilot, and you know, we do hope, we'll hopefully, one day, perhaps, um, you know, our listeners can can see some some of that program. But yes. um, it would be great, yeah, to to be able to see it because it is it's beautifully shot. Um, you know, the set design is beautiful. The uh, you know the music is wonderful. The sophistication of the writer coming from you know that theatre background, Arlene Schulman. Um, you know, it was quite a sophisticated piece of TV. And, and in watching it, I think I kind of related to the, the show probably as a first-generation Italian-Australian, so not a Greek, but an e- Italian, because Danny Thomas, when you first see him on screen, you expect him to be this very proper Orthodox priest. You know, he's going and doing a blessing or whatever in the house because Michael Constantine is, is quite a um, superstitious person, so I think they're, they're doing something to do with that. But in some ways, he ends up being a lot more progressive than the brothers because the brothers, the parents had left Greece so long ago um, and the brothers um, in the pilot are, are, are looking after Penny Arts, even though they're all adults because the, the, the parents have died. But when the parents leaving Greece so long ago, the sons have taken on the traditions of the old country as they were all those years ago and continued them in New York where they run this delicatessen. But ironically, in so many cases of immigrants, the old country isn't like that anymore where it really does reflect how immigrants come to countries and are kind of stuck between the old ways and the new country and then also probably not fitting in if they ever return to the old country because things have, you know, moved on from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, change is not easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially in, you know, when you um, love your culture and um, you have a long history mm. and... Um, I, I think that's, you know, one of the main conflicts, you know, that that we've all been witnessing all over the planet, you know, is how does one 
maintain, you know, their culture um, without it uh, and blend, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. blend into a kind of one world family or community. Um, it, you know, it, it requires a lot of acceptance and adaptation and, um, and flexibility, really, uh, and, and curiosity, you know, for someone that comes from a long, long, long tradition, maybe a mm. thousand years or mm. two thousand years of people doing it the same way. And then suddenly, you know, that it's um, I have to say, <laughs> I, I don't want to be too abstract, but <laughs> I, I saw E.T. for the very first time. OK. You know, yep. during this uh, coronavirus period. And <laughs> I, I just never got around to seeing it. And mm. it's kind of like E.T., you know, you, he had to or it had to, <laughs> you know, acclimate to um, a, a totally new environment. You it's, know, mm. I, I hadn't actually thought of the connection, but you're very, you're very right. I think seeing something like that's kind of, you know, the extreme of seeing, you know, the foreignness of a, of a country. But I'm just thinking of all these people who would have got off, you know, boats in the 60s, including my family in Australia, and looked around at this, I guess, what would have probably looked like a very, you know, um, dry outback country and thought, where am I? What is this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it takes usually I would say from my own experience from my family mm. that I was able to talk with, you know, an elder um, and and just learning the language, mm. you know, coming as an immigrant. And I, I was so grateful, you know, that I'm third generation in the United States to um, not have to go through that whole acclimation period you know um it's certainly it's 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 a huge huge challenge and um it it really takes a lot of courage you know to Mm. to uh, to not want to kind of um how should we say uh stay in your own box in your own you know comfort zone Mm. and not go out stay you know stay with your own language and and more or less not venture into a more universal situation it's hard Mm. it's really hard i mean it's it would be hey i am now living near mexico Mm. Mm. i'm still in the united states but i'm very very close to mexico in southern arizona and crossing over the border i have not done Mm. at this point you Mm. know while i'm living here but you know i only know a few spanish words and um and there are a lot of spanish speaking people here so Mm. it would be wonderful you know if i could just keep my mind open and you know how most people in america kind of insist upon speaking english it's like Mm. You know that that mm. that's your first language, and the and everybody else's language is the second language or third or whatever. Absolutely, it's it's that kind of thing that you know when we think besides the cultural change of coming over somewhere, just just the language that the fact that you don't know the common language and us in the English speaking countries are just very fortunate that or or very we can be very lazy because it is such a predominant language all over the world and. And yet thinking about, you know, even when you go and travel for, for fun or when you went to Italy or when you went to France, you know, we, we pick up a few words here and there. But then having to communicate in this completely foreign language, we can get some 
little idea from even that of why people perhaps find it very hard to integrate because you do want to be surrounded by people who speak your language and I would dare say many of these immigrants that came at certain times in the world and probably still today are not always the most welcomed by the host country. So it, it really, um, we can see how, how you know, the traditions are also something of maintaining the old or maintaining a link. But, um, you know, I think... But in that, mm, in that mm. period of time, you know, in the 60s, mm. before All in the Family came in, mm. um, you know, the, Norman Lear kind of broke the glass ceiling and mm. and and exposed ethnicity on onto the american television well uh, mm. he did it he did it in a in a way where it was very um successful and very accepted mm. and when jack good on shindig you know tried to produce a multi-racial show um it backfired you know i mean it was successful for a short time but but uh, not by the network so uh, there was no approval. So it the two for penny series, mm, getting mm, back to that, mm. um, you know, just hadn't reached that time zone of acceptance yet. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think you're very right that I think if it would probably had been a couple of years later than when it was, because it was filmed in 67 and dead in probably early 68, if it had come along just a little bit later, I, I think people would have related to it more because as you said I think it was probably ahead of its time in showing a lead family that was an ethnic family and that's per- perhaps why it didn't hit at that time um you know even you know we flash forward so many years later of course and Michael Constantine's in The Father in My Big Fat Greek Wedding which yeah. is a very kind of similar story really I mean it's a comedy it's a romantic comedy um there's not so much there, there's that cultural conflict but but this time he's playing the father instead of the overprotective brother. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah so what um, a dear man. He was so sweet and I was so sad. That was so terrible, you know, when in real life, you know, when you're working and all mm. of a sudden a physical problem happens and oh. I I just I, I think anyone who had listened to that can just picture unfortunately a toenail getting stuck on on something oh. and just the 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 pain of it and you must have felt terrible even though it was just an accident i did Uh, but i mean what a trooper uh, you know just after a few hours he was back working like nothing nothing (laughs) had ever happened you know it's interesting um you know i think what we're speaking about here is is probably quite universal or, or people that are listening probably have their own stories of these uh, you know, cultural situations, whether it's, um, you know, family who came to a new, new country, whether it was them who came to a new country, um, you know, whether it was those sort of family issues, that clash of cultures, you know, we're talking about with this series, you know, with my, my big fat Greek wedding. Um, so, you know, as always, we'd love to hear some of those stories. That could actually be a really interesting uh, discussion we could have in a subsequent episode. So as always, if you do have questions or reflections, please do email us at podcast at Donna Lauren. You know, in watching the pilot again the other day, Donna, I was wondering how much you related to that character, because I think there's there's times when she speaks about being a a commodity. There's that scene where the the brothers and the other family are kind of fighting over how much money each each family has to bring to the table. Um, You know, she also is kind of stuck between the wants of her family, which in some way she does want to adhere to. She does want to do things the so-called right way, you know, find a boy, a Greek boy. but then there's Bill Bixby, this very not Greek guy that she has feelings for, or at least, you know, has a, he's not a Greek guy, you know, but she has interests in. Um, 
and you know she's kind of a character who has to adhere to these you know morals or or um or ways of thinking of an earlier time but she's entering a mod type world you know a young woman in new york city who who works in a bookkeeper's office um did you feel as if you can remember from there did you feel some connection to some of those ideas you know dr adam mm. you have have brought up a really good issue because mm. i think it may have been so close to home that no I didn't yeah (laughs) (laughs) it was just something that came very natural Mm, mm. maybe to my detriment but (laughs) (laughs) but um no I didn't really uh put that together you know my reality and that role Mm. that I could relate to it um it's just something that be you know basically uh felt that uh, that uh, I could just be in the flow with, mm, which which probably is that implicit sort of understanding of it. But yeah, like you said, per- perhaps at this time in particular, you weren't quite um, noticing those sorts of parallels. Because when you, particularly when you're in a situation that is so confusing in in terms of your home life, it's it's not something we we can al- always see something playing out in front of us and go, oh, I, I can relate to that or I can get an insight from it. But, yeah, like you said, perhaps it was just integrated into the performance. Did, um, <laughs> did But um, I think there is a point that you are bringing up that's just coming to mind. Mm. Um, because I was experiencing a little bit more freedom mm. in my relationship, mm. in my personal relationship, um, it probably, you know, my working experience was a little bit more autonomous, mm. you know, n- not overtly, not mm. something where I was taking action, you know, like I'm just driving myself to the set. I don't <laughs> need you there. No, I still went accompanied with, you know, my, my dad. Mm. And, and for that, I'm grateful because now I have, Hey, I've got pictures to prove it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Um, and, you know, I kind of wonder when you're talking about that kind of freedom and that autonomy and, and developing some of that on the set, um, you know, it kind of ties into you're talking about, you know, working with Paul Bogart, who was a very esteemed director. You know, he, he directed The Defenders, Get Smart, All in the Family, uh, The Golden Girls, a whole range of things. And, of course, you had all, Arnold Schulman, who wrote and produces, and he's a very esteemed um, stage writer. But you talk about, you know, that toothbrush scene and the idea of, we've spoken about this before where you're able to develop skills as an actress or, or whatever else, rather than feeling that you have to pick it up then and there on the set and then just try to go with it. Um, because you did feel sometimes that you, you didn't have that training. I was listening the other day to an interview with Faith Ford who played Corky on Murphy Brown. And she kind of spoke about her early years in New York and how she was enrolled in a program that taught a range of skills to young performers, including things like acting and soap opera, which she ultimately started off with before she went to Murphy Brown. But it's when you do talk about that kind of being in the flow, that although you might have not had that training, it did seem that in your performances, whether it was acting or whether it was in, you know, singing, it did pick up on something sort of in inside of you that that translated or went beyond those constraints of perhaps not having um, you know, the training, because I think you still projected this, this realness, I guess, Faith Ward was talking about, she, she went to a makeup, um, a modeling job for, I think it was Maybelline. 
and she wasn't expecting to go to it and she kind of rocked up with you know kind of very curly hair and she was chewing gum and they they saw she was chewing gum and they asked her to blow a bubble and she you know blew this really big bubble that I think eventually exploded on her face but it was it was that realness that kind of got her the job in the same way that when you signed up for Dr Pepper you know you were on the on the chair that spun around and you kind of almost you know launched off of it yeah Um, that's a cute story that, yeah, I think I think a director, a producer, writer, you know, they're, they're looking for how you come across on the screen. You know, mm. if it's, it's the stage is one thing, the screen is another, recording is another. It's mm. how you come across on those various mediums. And um, my one experience with Paul Bogart, when mm. he kind of put me on the spot, honest mm. to God, I mean, even this morning when I brush my teeth, I think of him. <laughs> Oh my it's, goodness. It's nuts because he was so disappointed. He didn't mm-hmm. like the way I brushed my teeth. I mean, okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he was so disappointed. Um and and it really left an impression. It's so mm. so something something about what his sincerity of wanting to give me a I don't know, kind of a very off the cuff kind of situation mm. and s- see how I could handle it. Maybe, um, you know, it, I don't know. It, I think when I was going, going through scripts and, you know, having to show up and doing what I was guided to do, mm. um, I could, I could stay within those parameters, but it, but being so, so spontaneous, just like the dating game, mm, you know, mm. I couldn't choose. I knew, I knew my limitations. I, I, I kind of, I knew myself. I knew myself to the point where I really actually didn't want to give away who I actually am. And I think people like maybe a Robert De Niro or mm. a Meryl Streep or, you know, any of the great, great actors along the way, um, they find roles that they can tap into that touches something inside them and that they can reveal mm. that they wouldn't ordinarily, you know, do mm. and, um, and, and help to relate to other people. Um, I've grown to respect that tremendously, mm. but yeah. It didn't happen for me in that moment. <laughs> in that moment, and and just, yeah, that effect that to this to this day, I'm I'm sorry that has to that has to happen. But it's um... okay because you know it's it's almost like the phantom. He's there, you know. <laughs> he's there, and and I think about him. So maybe I'm brushing my teeth a little differently. I don't know. It's you a, might it makes makes me more conscious. <laughs> Uh, we'll call it the Bogart effect, you know. I don't know okay. if, it's, if it's in a dentist okay. journal, but yeah. <laughs> don't um, Bogart that brush, right? Love it. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, having that time to to spend on the set with, I guess, with him, but also Arnold Schulman. Um, you know, I want to share with you another Mickey Mouse watch story that I uncovered about Arnold Schulman the other day when I was researching for this, because as you said, uh, you went and collected some watches at Disneyland for his um, children. Um, but back in 2019, he was interviewed by a journalist, uh, Claude Solnick, for AM New York when he had a new show opening up on stage in New York at 93 years of age, which is, you know, amazing. 
And in it, Arnold Shulman spoke about selling his first story to one of those, you know, those boys' magazines they kind of had, I guess, in the 30s or the 40s, those kind of adventure-type magazines. And he said, I sold my first story when I was nine to a boys' magazine. I sent it in, got published, and got a Mickey Mouse watch. I thought I'd sit down and write things and get Mickey Mouse watches. So, Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you kind of honed into something that he experienced. How synchronistic that is. I'm telling you, synchronicity is something that I keep mm. experiencing more and more every day. It's yeah. yeah. Amazing how you think you, you know, you have to make something happen. And yes, you do have to put an effort into everything. Mm. Mm. But synchronicity, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, like the other day, I have. I just give you one example. Mm. Mm. The other day, I think I told you about this this uh, podcast out of England that I was mm. going to be on, and mm. um, and and the morning that I was going to be hooking up with the host, mm. and he, um, I was not really up for it, mm. Mm. and but I was going to go for it. Anyway, and I was even going to share that, oh, you're catching me at not such a great time, but let's talk anyway. Mm. And he and and I'm not kidding. Within five minutes, I get an email. Would you mind rescheduling? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Timing is everything, isn't it? It's I just love the synchronicity when there's some interesting, unexplainable communication between you know, two entities or, um, I mean, we don't even know each other. We were just going to meet, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and, and, um, and yet through the airwaves, through the ethers, there was a, some form of communication because boom, there it was. And sure, I absolutely want to reschedule. It works for me. Yeah. And that's, uh, I mean, that's a whole other topic that we, we probably should delve into at some point. But again, if anyone listening does kind of have any of those those cool moments to share with us you know please do because you do notice them when you're looking out for them and and they kind of hit you in the face you're like whoa that's that's cool that's interesting that's different i'm going to take a giant leap of faith dr Mm -hmm. adam Mm -hmm. because we were going to talk about an idea and Mm -hmm. and um i would love to invite um our our listeners, our fans, mm. Mm. to um, engage in our podcast in discussions. I think mm. it would be very fertile ground for, you know, an interaction between fans of mine that that have been following me mm. for decades and mm. people that have been listening to our podcast. And, um, and of course, th- I'm bringing it up and, mm-hmm. um, and you can edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> Why would I do that? I wouldn't do that. <laughs> but at any rate, um, I just, I just know that everyone at this time on planet earth, you know, has very strong feelings and I would love to have them share in our discussions so um anyway we can structure that and and informally dis- discuss it and and mm. uh, and send those invitations out absolutely so please do contact us at podcast at donnalauren.net and yeah let's see if we can open up the conversation like emails and questions are wonderful 
um, but we can we may you know be able to do something else in conversation so yeah do help us make this as interactive as we can you know I, I want to touch really briefly because I, I know I also want to talk a bit more about the the family dynamic that you spoke about in the chapter but of course we've got to just remember that Regis Philbin had a very small part in this in this pilot as one of the delicatessen customers um, so that's kind <laughs> of a cool bit of pop cultural history right there yeah, he didn't show up on on Twilight Zone like so many mm. superstars, mm. you know, made their debuts. But <laughs> but here he was, you know, about to get yeah. zonked over the head by one of the brothers because he wanted to order, I think, a pastrami or salami or a <laughs> something sandwich. But, um, <laughs> but you know, it's interesting that um, you know you had the potential for this this TV series, and that seems to be a big achievement. But when it doesn't happen, as you said in the reading, you don't seem to be as concerned as perhaps you would have been earlier in in your career if you hadn't gotten a job. It seems perhaps that your priorities are shifting at this point towards oh, family. Mm. Indeed, indeed. I mean, as soon as as soon as um, you know, I met with Lenny's family, and and that became. F- formalized mm-hmm. um you know I, I i don't know i believe me you go day by day you don't know what's going to happen mm. but i felt i i felt an air of freedom i felt a little bit more autonomous um and of course the man that that i was going to be marrying was very much a revolutionary mm. and um did things his way and you know, and, um, and was very much appreciated for that. So, uh, you know, he set a fine example for me to actually feel like I could have a, a, a shift in my life. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, things, things uh, were progressing very quickly. And meeting his mother and meeting mm. his father mm. um, just made a huge impression on me. And um, gave me a sense of security that I would be welcomed into a new family. Mm. And certainly, uh, and we will speak about this subsequently, but, you know, developing those relationships with his parents, um, particularly his father, Cy, over time. Um, for music aficionado, Cy was one of the founders of Liberty Records and, of course, was a violinist himself, which explains why he had that picture of the Clown, was it the clown playing a violin? Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, clowns scare the bejesus out of me, but. <laughs> um, Only in a Fellini movie. <laughs> yes, exactly. Only in a Fellini movie. Um, you know, and, and I mean, even, you know, Cy being such a such a, a big influence on music that one of the chipmunks is named after him. Cy, Simon yes. is named after him, which is kind of cool. But, yeah, just we're really moving towards this this idea that I guess you focus, 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 but what is the biggest thing that kind of changes priority or or changes our perspective? And again, it's finding love. Yes, it's finding love. You're so right. And that, Mm. that love was, it was so all enveloping Mm. that, and I'm sure it is, you know, when you really do feel like you found a, the the person that you want to spend your life with and create a family and um, uh, you know it's 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 all encompassing 
I'm sure, you know, everyone can relate to that. No matter how long a, a marriage lasts, you know, you mm. going into it, it's just about everything you can think of. You know, it's the only thing you can think of. It's the most important thing you can think of is sharing your life with another person. That's absolutely right. And now's probably a good time to lead into our mailbag. Uh, as always, we welcome comments and questions from um, our listeners. And so I have one from Lloyd Turner who wrote to us and he says, Dear Miss Lauren, I enjoy listening to your podcast. It's relaxing, fun and has a plethora of information on 60s nostalgia. To be honest with you, I'm about to watch Beach Blanket Bingo for the first time and I'm a little nervous. Any advice? Ooh. Yes, hang 10, Lloyd. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say don't burn the weenie, but that would probably make much more sense to, to Lloyd once he watches Beach Blanket Bingo. Yeah, both, both are good advice. <laughs> well, thanks for writing in, Lloyd. That's great to hear from you. And it's, and it's kind of cool that someone's discovering that movie for the first time. That's wonderful. So um, welcome to the Love's a Secret Weapon community. Well, we've covered a lot today. So I guess what we're working towards in our next episode is a wedding. Da, 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 da. <laughs> <laughs> Looking <so> forward. <laughs> absolutely. It, it, it kind of reminds me just to, uh, I, I guess, circle back to where we started when we were talking about that family um, organization of a wedding, particularly in the Two for Penny series. And um, there's a scene in that where there's this, I presume she's the Greek grandmother sitting between, she insists on sitting between oh, yeah. <laughs> your character and, and the young boy. And I, I've kind of got this picture in my head. I'm sure I've got a photo somewhere of my grandparents who, uh, in, in southern Italy in the 1950s, who would have probably only been in their teens. And they were they they got married very young. But I'm pretty sure there's a picture of the two of them. And in between is my grandmother's grandmother <laughs> looking very imposing and unimpressed by the whole thing. So, well, that's, that's life. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. But <laughs> as always, wonderful to speak with you, Donna. And I look forward to picking up our conversation again soon. Absolutely, and we will keep the beat going on Love's a Secret Weapon.
Yes, no.